Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire for part two. Part two of Crooked City, Youngstown, Ohio with Johnny Ciccatelli. Welcome, Johnny. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me back. Well, I'm really glad you got hold of me about this because I, I think I've mentioned before, I wanted to do something on Youngstown for a long time, and I just I don't just get distracted by John Gotti half the time, as we all do. And so I'm really glad you guys did this podcast because uh, I've learned a lot by listening to it. And, and Crooked City, Youngstown, Ohio, it's a great podcast, guys. Uh, you know, when you're not listening to Gangland Wire, and I know everybody listens to way more than one podcast. I sure do. So so check that uh, Crooked Ta- Crooked City, Youngstown, Ohio out. And, and we have one of the producers here on it who was involved in the making of it and, and knows is from Youngstown, Ohio, correct, Johnny? Mm-hmm. Yep, and knows the mob history of Youngstown, Ohio, like I know the mob history of Kansas City, probably even better if he's going back to the olden days. Because, you know, in the last episode, we talked about the olden days or pre the 70s, say, when, when Youngstown uh, started going downhill when it became the poster child for the Rust Belt cities as, as unemployment skyrocketed and the steel mills shut down and, and the steel mills were about the only uh, industry, the only jobs, decent jobs they had in Youngstown. Is that right, right, Johnny? Yeah, the steel mills were, it was a one horse town for sure. So the steel, so, industry, the steel industry was was it. And, uh, when, when it. When it went under, they lost 50,000 jobs. You know, my, my grandfather and my father were, were steel workers, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, we went back a little further. I actually just found out uh, this week that my great-grandfather, who was a West Virginia hillbilly Italian, yeah, he came, he came to West Virginia right off the boat, became a coal miner. He was convicted in 1923 of violating the National Prohibition Act. <laughs> yeah, guess what for? <laughs> Bootlegging. Uh, like, he made he made the Dago red wine. They <laughs> all love it. Yes. There's a lot of that made back in those days. I was in a basement of an old house and the the great granddaughter of the original people that came over from Sicily actually they had a concrete vat made in the basement of this house, poured in the basement. And, and that's where they made the wine in the basement. And they had a tunnel underneath the street to their uh, sister brother's house across the street. So they would make it. And they had a storage room and then they would take it through the tunnel to the other house and they could take it out through the other house. So it's uh, uh, quite a history there. Yeah. And, you know, my great grandfather went on from, you know, he was a coal miner and his sons went came to Youngstown because it was. There was a promise of jobs. There were all these yeah. steel mills that needed workers. And uh, it was a big immigrant town. And so Italians were welcome. Huge Italian population. Even to this day in Mahoning County, Ohio, uh, I read a statistic that was outside of uh, what they considered New- the Northeast, New York, New England. It has the highest uh, per capita uh, population of Italians anywhere west of that i'll be so darned it's uh right here in youngstown ohio ah interesting and and when the italians especially from southern italy and sicily when they came back in the turn of the century uh 
they brought the black hand with them. There was a few of them that were the black hand, which was, you know, it was really part of survival over in Sicily against the, you know, shall we say the Northern oppressors at, at one time uh, got started, but they brought that with them. And, and that's uh, that tradition just continued on until modern times. So this week we're going to get on into modern times and talk about uh, this huge character, the sheriff, Jimmy Traficant, uh, and, uh, and we're going to get into Lenny Strollo a little bit. He was a more modern day boss of, of uh, Youngstown and more of a traditional mafia kind of a boss. So, uh, Johnny, where do you want to start? You want to start with uh, Jim Traficon? Uh, I think we got to start with Jimbo. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, right. At, just because that, that's what we're just talking about. Uh, the steel industry in Youngstown collapses at the end of the 70s. Black Monday, 1977. Uh, Youngstown Sheet and Tube announces they're shutting down suddenly, laying everybody off. It's uh, the first of many steel mills that close very quickly. There's um, a, a big change coming to Youngstown that, you know, it's not prepared for. Um, <clears throat> so thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of, of laid off steel workers are angry. Uh, unfortunately, this, this affects the mob as well, because suddenly there's not as much money to go around in Youngstown. These guys aren't spending it on yeah. the vices. Um, so that in, in effect starts triggers a little mob war. Uh, as we talked about in the last episode for control of the scraps, you know, what's left uh, at this time, there was a guy who seized a political opportunity that would uh, really change the face of Youngstown for a few decades his name was James Trafficant. Um, the family was, he was Italian. Obviously it was a Trafficante that was shortened uh, to just chain, to just Trafficant. He was the self-proclaimed son of a truck driver. Uh, he was a big football hero. People called him Jimbo when he was younger. So that was a nickname that kind of stuck. Uh, and, and if you say it around Youngstown, you'll get an affectionate response. <laughs> uh, if you say anything, you know, good about old Jimbo, uh, Jim was a, a quarterback of the famous Youngstown school here, uh, Cardinal Mooney, which becomes later on known for all these coaches, the Stoops brothers, uh, who coach, you know, Oklahoma and Kentucky, uh, the Polinis, um, those are coach boom, boom, Mancini, some, some famous athletes and sports guys, the DeBartolos who own the 49ers. Uh, they're all of this Cardinal Mooney, this Catholic high school in Youngstown. James Trafficant was the first graduating class, 1959. He was the star quarterback for the football team. He gets uh, a scholarship and goes to Pitt. He plays as quarterback for a few years at Pitt with guys like Mike Ditka. Okay. He was the quarterback who was kind of uncoachable. He was always getting benched uh, because he was getting in fights with his head coach against all of this. He still gets drafted uh, in the NFL by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work out with the Steelers who, who are about to have a phenomenal run there. Uh, this is, you know, going into the seventies. Uh, it doesn't work out there. He gets a tryout with the Oakland Raiders and almost makes it and doesn't, doesn't end up making it. So what does he do? He comes back to Youngstown and he gets into politics of all things. <laughs> yeah. 
people love Jim. He he could really win anyone over that he met. That was his. He was just gifted as a, as a politician. Uh, very personal politics. Things that he'd shake your hand and and you know tell you about your mother and your father and your grandfather and you know give you a whole family history of yourself. Uh, he knew people in the town and they knew him. And so he used that uh, to run for office. He ran for sheriff. Um, this is after a few years he'd gotten a master's degree. Very smart guy. Um, he was a drug counselor for a few years before that. He, he, he kind of ran a um, the methadone clinic, right? Getting people off the street and organizing people. And, you know, was uh, while he was getting a master's degree, that's what he was doing. And he started uh, uh, working on people's campaigns and got into politics. And eventually ran for sheriff in uh, 1980 and uh in youngstown as we talked about in the last episode going back to the 1940s the public here expects you to take money mm-hmm. when you run for office so it should have been known that he was going to be approached or um you know compromised in some degree <laughs> with the mob here in town the the guys at this time, I told you they were they were kind of battling for turf, Cleveland guys and Pittsburgh guys. The Carabias out of Cleveland, Joey Naples and Briar Hill, Jimmy Prado with the Pittsburgh families. Lenny Strollo was part of that group as well. Uh, it, it threw some just fantastic uh, luck, the and, and a couple you know and, and the effects of this mob war. The FBI gets their hands on some tapes, okay? This is um, later in 1980. They get their hands on these tapes uh, while they're searching a, an apartment of a missing mobster. They find these cassette tapes in a bread box. They call mm-hmm. them the bread box tapes. We <laughs> talked to the FBI agent who found them, Robert or Bob Croner. Uh, he's a big part of Crooked City. If you listen to Crooked City, um, he's a big voice in that in that uh, in that show. He tells the story of how he found those tapes and what was on them. And what was on them was Jim Traficant talking to two of the Carabia brothers <laughs> about the money that they gave him. Not only that, but the money that Joey Naples gave him and Briar Hill Jimmy Prado. So. <laughs> This tape was actually made by the Carabias. Hmm. They taped him as insurance in a way. You know, this guy, they didn't know what they, if they could control this guy. You know, he was yeah. kind of a loose cannon, a very big personality. And so they, they, they taped the own, their own conversation. Uh, one of them goes missing. A hitman for him goes missing. These tapes come up. Now, uh, uh, suddenly, the FBI calls Jim Trafficking into their office. And at this point, he's won the election. So I'll go back a little bit. On these tapes, he openly talks about $163,000 in contributions to his campaign for sheriff. Um, The majority of it, there was 60 of it came from the Carabias. The 100,000 came from the Pittsburgh side, Joey Naples and Jimmy Prado. And in it, he says some pretty uh, inflammatory stuff on these tapes and how 
if these tapes ever, uh, uh, or, or if anything were to happen and he were to get arrested for taking these bribes, he would say that he was doing a one man sting operation. I'm going to take down the mob. When he, <laughs> when he says this on the tapes, that's a good one. <laughs> when, he, when he says this on the tapes, the mobsters laugh. <laughs> they tell him it's a good one. They tell him he's crazy. So, of course, these tapes come out. The FBI gets a hold of them and they bring them in. And uh, Bob Croner talks this whole story. I don't want to ruin too much of it. On uh, You can check it out on Crooked City. But, you know, he talks about how they brought him in. They played the tapes. He denied everything until they played the tapes. And then suddenly he was defeated. <laughs> and he, according to them, he agreed to sign a confession and they, they wrote it up and they, all they did was slide it in front of him and for him to sign it. And, uh, and he signed it. Okay. And then the thinking was that he was going to cooperate with them to maybe take down both sides of the mob. Uh, unfortunately the FBI quickly learned Jim was never going to cooperate with them. Uh, and so as soon as he left that meeting, he had, he had made a, his, his own strategy and his own game plan. And, uh, it's truly unbelievable what happens after that. Um, he says, he goes to the public, goes on TV, says, uh, you know, I didn't do any of this is, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't trust any, any of these other corrupt cops or officials or anybody. And he, to, to a degree, he had a point. Yeah, you know, he did. Uh, at that point, we didn't get in much of it, but the guy who ran the FBI in town for 20 years was on Joey Naples payroll. So, uh, and, and he, by the time trafficking becomes sheriff in 1980, that guy I just mentioned, Stanley Peterson, the FBI agent of 20 years, was now the chief of police in Youngstown. And he was on the payroll of the mob. Oh my God. It's, it's really insane. It really it is, insane. is. And so he, to, to a certain degree, he wasn't lying when yeah. he said he couldn't trust any of these. He didn't trust the FBI. He didn't trust anybody. He didn't trust any of these guys. So he essentially, they, they charge him, they, they indict him and they, you know, have all this mountain of evidence against him. And he, uh, he takes them, he, he says, bring it on. And he defends himself. He's not a lawyer. He defends himself pro se in court <laughs> and against, against these charges of racketeering and bribery, these federal charges. They play the tapes. They show the confession, all of that. And he wins the case. <laughs> not, it's not a hung jury. He's acquitted. He's acquitted. Wow. And, and that's all detailed in Crooked City. We, we talked to one of the jurors uh, who, who, you oh, know, really? oh, real, just, you know, we break it down really well um, in, in Crooked City. And it's, uh, you know, just a fascinating uh, uh, look at that trial and that case. And, and, you know, as soon as he wins, and I'm leaving so much of the juicy stuff out, the, the, the real fun details. Uh, I should go back and, and think that uh, I need to describe what Jim Trafkin looks like now for you. Yeah. Okay. Big guy, college quarterback. Okay. Now it's, it's uh, you know, 15 years removed from his playing days or 10, maybe 10 years removed from his playing days. He's got 
uh, a toupee on top of his head. That's it's and, and in 1980, it was just a small one and it grows over the decades, but, <laughs> uh, you know, these long sideburns, uh, um, <laughs> glasses, he wore clothes that had, he wore like, uh, this old blazer that had holes in it and, and was just rat, you know, uh, tattered. He wore bell-bottom pants and cowboy boots. <laughs> and that was what the jury saw as opposed to the three-piece suit of the FBI's prosecutor. Yeah. And and they and the FBI guys that were also sitting at the table in their nice suits. Uh he really played it as I'm one of you, I'm a man of the people, and these guys are coming after me. Um you know, before, as keep in mind, he's still the sheriff. Okay. <laughs> so what he's doing at this time, right before the trial starts, he, he campaigned uh, on uh, getting drugs off the street. He, you know, he had this background as a drug counselor. He was going to yeah. get drugs off the street. So he goes on this uh, uh, mission, this publicity mission, this publicity tour, basically before the trial starts where he starts busting drug dealers. Oh, yeah. And, Now's the time for a big drug bust and, and oh, get yeah. money and guns on the table. <laughs> that, that is the time. <laughs> oh, there's pictures of him with these giant you know, machine <laughs> yeah. guns. And, oh, yeah. The whole nine. Uh, but an even more stroke of genius, what he did as the sheriff, it was his job to evict, post the notices of eviction. Oh, yeah, and, that's true. And evict these were laid off steel workers. Yeah. And he he saw the news cameras there at the uh, at his dereliction of duty trial. Uh, he he got brought before a local judge, and the judge said, "Will you sign these deeds?" And he knows that the cameras roll on the news camera, and he goes into this big tirade about how he won't do it, and uh, you're going to have to throw him in jail. And so he goes and spends three days in the Mahoning County Jail as the sheriff. Uh, <laughs> they handcuff him, take him away. And uh, even though he he does eventually sign them three days later, he got all the publicity off of it yeah. and became cemented in that moment that this guy cares about the steelworkers, about the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of us. Yeah. And so what he did in this trial was he convinced the judge very early on they were they were going to they did it in Cleveland. OK, at a federal courthouse in Cleveland, which is an hour away. Youngstown, as we talked about last time, it's an hour away from Cleveland. It's an hour away from Pittsburgh in different directions. So they had the trial in Cleveland, but he convinced the judge to allow half of the jury, six members of the jury, to come from Youngstown. He said, I, I want to be you know, uh, a jury of my peers. Right. And you've got to be from Youngstown. He said, I, you know, Cleveland's close, but you've got to be from Youngstown to understand Youngstown mm-hmm. and the people in Youngstown, maybe more so than, than any other city like it, mob infested city, the people of Youngstown knew the mobsters in town. Mm-hmm. People then could tell you who was the boss. Okay. On the street, these, you know, they knew these guys. So they understood how the town was, how the town was corrupt and how, Things that he was saying, I can't trust these the, these other cops or these FBI or whatever. Uh, they knew that there was some truth to it. So 
even though they had a, a, a tape where he <laughs> where he spells everything out uh, in great detail about the money he took from both say who and who and you know, all that, even though they had the confession, even though they had the testimony of these FBI agents who, who had who, you know did the case. Jim was still acquitted, mm-hmm. and uh, he told the jurors, "If you stick by me like a junkyard dog in the face of a hurricane," that was the saying that he did that became a big famous saying after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you stick with me like a junkyard dog in a hurricane, you know we'll win, we'll beat this thing. And mm-hmm. afterwards, after that trial ended, I don't know if you'd ever see this anywhere. The jury was outside the court on the courtroom steps photographed hugging him crying uh it was a real spectacle you know this this, this whole thing and then wow. he uh what does he do what is it, what, what would you do gary if, if you just <laughs> that, if you just pulled off that grand feet I, I would say wow i slick by that one and try to start laying low for a while <laughs> yeah exactly that's not big jimbo <laughs> jimbo bet. goes bigger and he uh he runs for congress yeah and he wins uh, and becomes the congressman in Youngstown for the next 20 years, 18 years, I believe. Um, wins in landslide after landslide after landslide. Yeah. Um, and, and becomes this famous guy in Congress for uh, – his looks only got goofier as he got older. <laughs> because, like I said, the toupee kind of grows. <laughs> um, his wife was a hairdresser. He always pointed it out, how, you know, how uh, – how odd it was, but uh, he would give these one-minute speeches on on the House floor, uh, where he would rail against anybody, the FBI, the IRS, uh, and, and I'll explain that. When he became congressman, the government was was there. They were they were determined to get him some way. Ah, uh, yeah. And they brought him up on a tax charge. Uh, and got him in civil court, I believe, where they got him for not paying any taxes on the $163,000 the mob gave him. And he argued, again, he defended himself, and he argued, how can you, how can you bring back a bribe that was already considered, that I was acquitted for? Yeah. And, and the judge, he didn't have a jury trial this time, he just had a judge. And the judge ruled no, no dice. And so they actually took money out of his congressional paycheck. And <laughs> garnished years. his congressional paycheck. <laughs> However many years they garnished his checks to cover that fee, whatever he owed on those taxes. And so that lit a fire under his ass against the, uh, the IRS. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and, uh, and he went against the IRS from that point forward and, and, he started taking on these causes in Congress that were supposed to be championing the the the, the little man against the big establishment, yeah. and uh, and became a character and, and a much beloved character. You know, not even just in Youngstown, but around the country. And it's uh, yeah, like I said, he's a big through line for the Mahoney Valley. He be as our congressman, he was the face yeah. of Youngstown in a way, and and the corrupt history of this place <laughs> and uh eventually they come back and get him again after they've finally 
toppled the mob in Youngstown. So we can get back to the mob for a second. I know you want to. I know you want to hear about Letty Strollo. Yeah, yeah, a little bit about him. So, uh, in our last episode, we talked a lot about Joey Naples mm-hmm. and and the Naples brothers. So Joey's the surviving um, kind of boss of the Naples brothers. Uh, he becomes a made man after the disappearance of of uh, uh, Charlie Carabia. So. Throughout this whole time that the trafficking thing's happening, Joey Naples is getting rid of his competition and rising up. Uh, his his boss, Briar Hill Jimmy Prado, uh, gets old and and he's on the way out. He, he dies of natural causes eventually at the, at the end of the 80s. But before he does, he sponsors Joey Naples and Lenny Strollo to become made men in the Pittsburgh family, the LaRocca family. So at this time, Michael Genovese was the boss and those guys get made in the same ceremony, okay? Now, they, these guys were rivals. Joey Naples and Lenny Strollo, um, even though they were both part of the same organized crime family, they weren't part of the same clique and family and youngster. Yeah. And so Lenny uh, always kind of resented. Joey was always the one, the powerful one. He was always considered the boss, right? And he didn't think that should be because they were made at the same meeting. So these guys had a joint operation. They ran uh, a casino at the end of the 1980s, Lenny Strollo and Joey Naples, called the All-American Club, which was one of the biggest casinos uh, outside of Las Vegas, the biggest illegal casino outside of Las Vegas. They were pulling in $20 million a year. Mm. And it was this just nondescript windowless building in Camel, Ohio, right outside of Youngstown. Uh, city uh, the city line and they were pulling in big money right 20 million a year they were doing this for years so finally the fbi busted them and they busted lenny strollo it was under everything was under him it was kind of he was on paper as the guy running the, the show joey naples doesn't get charged so that bleeds even more resentment to lenny who mm-hmm. from that point forward believes that joey's working with the fbi so a rumor gets out there that Joey Naples is an FBI informant. Lenny Strollo goes to prison uh, for a couple of years for the All-American Club Casino. While he's uh, on his way out of prison at a halfway house in 1991, Joey Naples is assassinated. Now, this is a big deal. He's a made guy. Yeah. Okay? Um, to this day, it's unsolved and it's not known even amongst you know the FBI and everything, they, they have suspects, but the motives and everything is still very unclear because Lenny Strollo would deny this to the day he died, that he had anything to do with the killing of Joey Naples. Now, he might have been saying that because, you know, that's against the rules. You can't just right. kill another guy. Um, there's some suspects, and we talked to him in the Crooked City podcast. We explore this topic as well. but. The bottom line is Joey was gone. In 1991, Joey is he's he's goes to this construction of his new house, this big mansion he's being have, he's having built, and he he, he had OCD un, undiagnosed. He was a very a neat freak. People said he flossed his teeth 50 times a day. Hmm. Uh, he would always show up every night, just like his older brother Sandy, who was killed every night like clockwork, going to his girlfriend's house. Joey would go to the construction site of his new mansion every night and sweep up. 
He didn't like mess. And that's where they killed him. They got him a sniper from across the street in a cornfield because he is building a mansion out in the country. Uh, a sniper puts a couple bullets in him as he's, he's getting back into his car. And uh, 1991. So Lenny Strollo becomes the de facto boss of Youngstown. The old man, Briarhill Jimmy Prado, had died of natural causes. Now Lenny is the only made man in town. Okay. Ronnie Carabi is still in prison for killing Danny Green. And, and his other brother went missing. So now Lenny's the guy. And Pittsburgh sends one of their guys, uh, a, a guy named Henry Zatola, Zebo, they called him. They sent him, the boss of Pittsburgh sends Zebo to Youngstown to keep an eye on Lenny Strollo because they don't know if he just killed Joey Naples. That's against the rules. You got to get permission, right, Gary? Right. Yeah, that's that's a big no-no. They, uh, you know, they were uh, pulling out all the stops to try to get somebody to tell them that Strollo was involved in that. Exactly. Exactly. So, so he goes there, and Lenny denies, and you know, Lenny was in a halfway house when it happened, so he was just getting out of prison. Uh, but it becomes, you know, Joey Naples' crew is now resentful of Lenny because now suddenly it went from these guys were yeah players. And their their guy gets clipped, and now Lenny becomes usurps them, and his group becomes these guys. So uh, Pittsburgh, the family says, "Okay, Lenny's the boss. Lenny's the boss of Youngstown." This doesn't sit well with the Naples crew, and one one gentleman in particular named Ernie Biandillo, who is one of Naples' most trusted guys, lets it be known that he's not going to take orders from Lenny Strollo. Well, Zebo Zatola is there to tell him, Lenny's the boss. You better fall in line. He doesn't fall in line. They kill Ernie Biandillo. Uh, and this, how they do it is what brings Lenny Strollo down eventually. Um, at this point, it's the 1990s. We're in the mid-90s, okay? Joey Naples died in 91. This is now 95, 96. Lenny Stro uh, uh, Ernie Biandillo is gunned down on his way to work to, to his vending machine business. He's gunned down by a couple of drug dealers, uh, a couple of young black guys. Mm. Lenny Strollo at this point had started working with young drug dealers in town. Uh, at first he was ripping them off. Mm -hmm. was, these were the only guys that had any money the yeah. 1990s, they were selling crack. They were making a lot of money in Youngstown yeah. on drugs and crack, especially. And the murder rate was going through the roof on the street. So Lenny Strollo was brought this plan by one of his lieutenants, a Jewish guy named uh, Bernard Altschuler, who was affectionately known simply as Bernie the Jew. That's it. That's his nickname. Uh, Bernie brings Lenny a plan that says, "Hey." We can get these guys money. We can get this drug money. They they set up some gambling spots in in uh, you know the, these parts of town, and they cheat these guys with rigged dice and <laughs> oh, fast wow. and fast card dealers. <laughs> they 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 start making money off these guys. Then Bernie brings Lenny another plan that's. You know, these guys are getting in trouble. They, they keep getting arrested. Okay. Lenny owns City Hall. 
He yeah. owns judges. He owns lawyers. He owns the prosecutor. He's got his hooks into everybody. They set up a racket to fix cases. Mm-hmm. And word gets out that certain amount of money, 10 grand can fix this, you know, more for certain things, you know, yeah. depending on what you're in trouble with. But the word gets out. And Youngstown's murder rate goes um, through the roof. And per capita in 1994, it was actually, uh, I think the highest per capita in the nation was called Murder Town and, and uh, the murder capital of the country. Mm-hmm. So this was all because Lenny, as the boss, is kind of rigging these cases um, and making just hand over foot with, uh, with, the, with, the, with this racket. So, but he, he forms this kind of, uh, this unholy alliance, if you will, you know, with, with these drug dealers and they start then using these guys to do hits. And they're the ones that they, they have a crew that goes and kills Ernie B and Dillo, but these guys are not, you know, mob hitmen. No, they're, they make mistakes. And so one of them in particular steals Ernie B and Dillo's ring. And it's a big diamond encrusted ring with his initials E B and diamonds, uh-huh. oh, and it's a very boy. distinct ring. Yeah. And they took they took this ring, and you know, I guess Elvis Presley, right? He might have had one to E P, but yeah. e, Ernie B, and they pawned it at a pawn shop in Pittsburgh. Oh man! Now <laughs> Talk about it actually, it actually goes, stupid. <laughs> it actually goes unsolved though. For, really? For a little while, and until. A guy named Paul Gaines decides he's going to run for prosecutor. This is a former cop turned lawyer, turned defense lawyer. Now he's heard rumors around town that you can buy cases, that the prosecutor's office is corrupt. So he runs for city prosecutor, county prosecutor here. And again, it's, you know, one of these kind of things, nobody expects him to win. Uh, and uh, he actually turns down the mob's money. He says he's offered a few times. He's offered 10 grand, yeah. 20 grand, 25 grand. He says no. He keeps telling them no. He's approached at a funeral. <laughs> They're trying to get him any way they can before the, uh, before the election. Uh, this is how it works in Youngstown. Everybody takes their, yeah. their money. This guy says no. And that scared the hell out of him. So now he wins. He wins the election. He becomes the, by 500 votes, he's the new prosecutor. This is 1996, November. He's going to take office in January, first week of January. Ohio has a law that says the only way he's not going to take office is if, if, if he's killed. Because they thought about planting drugs on him, uh, setting him up with a hooker. They tried, they, they, this is all on FBI wiretap that they thought of all these things to do. But uh, eventually they say, you know what, We're, they're going to kill him. And they hire these guys, the same drug dealers and everything. Uh, the drug dealers case this guy, Paul Gaines, over the month of December. Any chance they can get, they're going to do it, but they don't do it. They, they, everything keeps popping up. Something happens, something happened. They don't want to do it. It didn't work out. We'll do it tomorrow. So finally, they decide they'll get him at his house in the suburbs. Well, they get the bright idea that, well, we should bring a white guy in on this this job because, you know, people might think it's suspicious, you know, 
these guys driving, a couple of these black guys driving around this white neighborhood, and they didn't want to put up any red flags. So they bring a guy named Mark Bacho, who is uh, an unstable guy in the sense that he was known for violence. He's in he's in our he's in our podcast as well. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, I, I talked to Mark. I actually go down to the uh, the prison that he's at, and uh, I, I had a few meetings. We were, I recorded the meetings that we did myself and another producer on the show. Uh, went down and talked to Mark a lot. Um, he tells a lot of stories in there. Some guys that he that he whacked, some other things that he did. Uh, he was hired by the mob to, in one of the case fixing schemes, they wanted to get a delay in a trial. Okay, so they send Mark to go shoot a lawyer <laughs> just to get a delay in the trial. Okay. Uh, talk about an extreme need for a continuance. <laughs> yeah. So, and he Your does. Honor, may I have a continuance? <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he does it. So, they now they bring him on to kill the prosecutor elect. Okay. It's all of December. They spent casing this guy. They're like, oh, they're running out of time. They're running out of time. Christmas Eve, 1996. They finally have him at the house. And uh, it's an it's an unbelievable story, Gary. That is. That is. God, a guy. I mean, I've it, never heard anything like this. I have it, never, ever. I've read a lot of mob stories and, and know a lot of mob stories, but I've never heard of anything like this. The crusading prosecutor, and they got him at his house on Christmas Eve. So they, and he survived yeah. because it, the story gets weirder. Uh, Mark Bacho breaks into the house uh, that comes in through the garage, which was open. Paul Gaines left it open to let his cats out for the night. And uh, he lived alone, was a bachelor. Mark Bacho comes into the house with the gun, 357. Magnum, you know, holds it up. Uh, Paul Gaines tells us he, it was the biggest gun he'd ever seen in his life. I can imagine. Yes. <laughs> he uh, he has his phone in his hand. Uh, he's shot. The bullet goes through the caller ID, knocks the phone line out, goes through his, his arm, goes through his rib, drops down. Mark Bacho goes over top of him and is now holding the gun over to his face. And the gun jams. Yeah, God. It won't work. Yeah. They didn't try the guns out before. They were using speed loaders, all kinds of stuff they didn't even need, really. And the gun jams. And Mark panics a little bit. And uh, he tells us in the podcast in that moment, you know, he's thinking, what am I even doing here? And he said he wanted to point the gun to his head and go. Mm -hmm. But he just turned around and ran. And he gets in the car with these guys, these, these uh, some of the drug dealers. Uh, one of them who needs Paul Gaines to die so that he'll get his case fixed. Yeah. Okay. He says, did you do it? And Mark says, yeah, I think so. And they said, well, what do you mean? And he says, with well, a gun jammed. They said, well, why didn't you go back in with a, get a steak knife and slit his throat? <laughs> By that point, they'd already heard on the police scanner that the cops are coming on the way. Yeah. Pulled, Paul Gaines pulled a cell phone out, called 911 and he survives and he takes office. And for months, nobody knows who did this. He doesn't believe that the mob did it. He doesn't believe it. Until one night, he gets a phone call 
from a girl, an ex-girlfriend of one of these drug dealers who was fed up with, with her guy and says, I know who shot you. And tells her the whole story about how they killed Ernie B, Ernie B and Dillo. They all passed around his, his ring. She tells him where they pawned it. And her testimony was the beginning of all those drug dealers then get arrested. And they all flip. And they start yeah. flipping on corrupt lawyers and judges. And over 80 city officials get indicted. Mm. Okay, in Youngstown. This is the end of the 90s. It's 1998 now. All come crashing down. A century's worth of corruption all comes crashing down. And eventually they get Lenny, Lenny Strollo's brother to flip. And the judge tells us in the podcast that his, their mother was still alive. And it was her decision that she didn't want one son testifying against another son. <laughs> And that is supposedly why Lenny Strollo then agreed to cooperate. And he turns, and by this point, almost everyone up the chain has flipped. flipped, Yeah. So there's only three guys left. (laughs) It's Lenny Strollo, Bernie the Jew, and Jeffrey Riddle, one of the the head black uh, drug dealer. Okay. Who would tell people that he was going to be the first black man made into the mob. <laughs> he, would, he, he would say he was the black John Gotti. Yep. And so it's these three guys left, and then Lenny flips. And against his childhood friend, Bernie Altshuler. And those are the only two guys. The only, there's one more guy, Lance, LeVance Turnage, another drug dealer. Three guys, two black guys and a Jewish guy, are the only ones that go down. And the whole thing, they, they're the ones that get the life sentences hmm. for the mob, taking down the mob in Youngstown. Jeffrey Riddle says, you'll hear him in the podcast, after he's found guilty, you know, he says, do you believe this? You know, he says, <laughs> yeah. he says that, that two, two brothers and an old Jewish man yeah. are the ones, you know, we're, they're, they're making it look like we're the mob. <laughs> and, uh, and so Lenny cuts the deal of a century. He gets to keep all of his money, all of his millions and his, his, his estates and all that. Uh, he serves, I believe, 12 years bouncing around, going in protective custody. Yeah. He was back in Youngstown a lot. People said they it was it was a running joke for a long time when he was supposedly locked up. That, <laughs> I just saw Lenny down at the thing, you know, down at <laughs> the, uh, the bowling alley or whatever. And, uh, you know, he, he eventually gets out. He, he lived. We, we talked to him. We tried to get him for Crooked City, and he passed away right when we were kind of in those negotiations yeah. with him to get him to sit down and talk with us. He, uh, he died in 2021. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, uh, just it was when he, when he gets, you know, uh, flips and it's all the mob crumbles at that point. Like I said, that was really the end of the mob in Youngstown the end of the nineties up to 2000 and then the FBI, they turned their attention back on Jim trafficking, our congressman. And they finally, they, they got him again for (laughs) racketeering. They, they indicted them again for racketeering, bribery, all that stuff. And again, he defends himself in court. This time he's got a jury trial. 
they won't. The judge this time around would not let him have any jurors from Youngstown. Mm. So when that happened, it was over. Uh, unfortunately, he went out. His his defense did not work this time, and he was found guilty, sentenced uh, to eight years, I believe, and he did almost the entire. Yeah, uh, you know thing. And, and I got in federal I, time. If you got eight year sentence, you got to do about seven. He did it. And, and uh, you know, just the end of an amazing, unbelievable movie worthy life. <laughs> really? Um, like I said, you know, as the character goes, you couldn't write this stuff. Really? Um, Need to make know, a mini series out of this. Hey, one of those extended HBO series on this, this thing. That would be I, great. I brought, some, I brought something for you too. While, while Jimbo was in prison, he took up uh, painting. And oh, yeah. I have, I have a few of the original oh, cool. artwork. He, he loved his horses. Uh, he got in trouble. Some of the bribes he got in trouble for were taking money for his horse farm. Uh, uh, lots of lots of favors on his horse farm. Uh, here's an Elvis Presley. Cool. Yeah, he's pretty there good. Go. And uh, his skills got better as he was there. And you know he he liked he liked his women. He had a lot of these. Uh, this one this one he wrote on the back. The preacher's daughter. He called it. <laughs> he had a sense of humor, man. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So you know, just a fascinating character. He goes away in two thousand and two, I believe. I was in high school, and uh, he ends up serving all that time. He gets out. Um, he he was going to run again for Congress. You know, finally. Uh, the public didn't vote for him. Yeah. And he ended up dying in 2014 on his farm in a tractor accident. That's how we kick off the Crooked City podcast. Uh, he dies in a, in a tractor accident. Um, and if you ask anybody in Youngstown, uh, it's a 50-50 chance you might yeah. get somebody say, oh, no, it was the feds were responsible for that one. <laughs> Men in black. Men in black. Yeah. Well, that sounds familiar in this day and age, but <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh Johnny, I really appreciate you coming on. Now, what what else you've been doing? It what what else you got going? Oh, I, I appreciate it, Gary. I, I'm uh I, I started so I, I spent a year working with Mark Smerling and his company on this podcast, Crooked City. You can check that out anywhere there's podcasts. Um but I've, I just launched my own company, amazing podcast company. I'm working with, uh, 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 you know, mutual acquaintance of ours, Rick Perello. Oh we're yeah. On, He's a good guy. On, I've had him on a couple of times. Yeah. We're working on a, on a, on a show called the vice squad that kind of explores a lot of the, uh, the earlier days of some of these guys. Um, and yeah, I made a documentary about Youngstown about 10 years ago. If you ever, it's up on YouTube now it's uh, Youngstown still standing somebody wanted to get more information they could check that out um and yeah that's and the last thing is we started a group on facebook okay. called youngstown mob and we've grown up to 24 23,000 people in three wow. months. youngstown mob so if there's people a lot of people from youngstown share stories pictures uh files it's a really great resource uh, for people like me, a historian, you know, journalist, filmmaker, um, it, it's been great. And a lot of folks have been reaching out to us on uh, on that site, the the Facebook group. So you can find me on there. Um, my YouTube channel, 
is Amazing Podcast Company. So it's just youtube.com slash amazing podcast company. Please, you know, check us out. We've got videos. We're always talking mob stuff and true crime and working on some cool stuff. All right, cool. Yeah, I just uh, just tried to uh, join the Youngstown Mob. I found it, but I can't join it as a page. I got to flip over to be. I'm a page and my uh, myself. I I'm feel you. I feel so. you, Gary. I got I got my own page. Uh, you know, when you start working in true crime, you can get some characters reach out, and you know, yeah, maybe from behind bars or wherever. Yeah. And so what I did was I, I created a page like you did. Yeah. And the page is Johnny Chicatelli on Facebook. Um, but that's long enough to spell my personal thing on there with the, with that Youngstown mob group is Johnny Consiglieri. And yeah. uh, <laughs> if uh, I'll be sure to, if you, if you send a, a request on there, we'll be sure to add. You. I'll, I'll get on there. I, I've got to go back and change that up. So anyhow, all right, Johnny, I really appreciate you coming on again. These have been great stories. Uh, my uh, wiretappers, we call them wiretappers are fans of the podcast. My, uh, many of them are my friends anymore. I've, made a lot of friends over the last four or five years and there are a bunch of good guys out there and they're going to eat this thing up and they're all going to be I'm a wiretapper to too, just to let you know. <laughs> all right, hey, guys, I'm, I'm one of you. I've been listening to Gary for a long time. <laughs> well, good. All right, folks, uh, don't forget to watch out for motorcycles when you're out there. You know, I like to ride a motorcycle and I do not want to get hit by your inattention and, and that can happen. Uh, if you have a problem, if you like you got a problem or a friend of yours has any problems with PTSD and they're a vet, be sure and go to the Veterans Administration website and get that hotline. And again, thanks a lot, Johnny. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Gary. All right.